Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, my guest is Neil Robertson, the 2010 world champion. Of course, the most successful non-British player the game's ever seen. Now, the first thing to say about this is that we arranged to do the interview at the Champion of Champions in Coventry after Neil's first match. It turned out to be his only match because he was beaten by Stuart Bingham. And I have to say, a lot of players would have driven home through disappointment and said, can we do it another time? Neil stayed behind. Not only did he stay behind, he stayed behind for 70 minutes, the longest podcast by far. And what you'll hear uh, over the course of the interview is a lot of really interesting stuff, I think. I think it's a real insight into really the mindset of a top snooker player. One of the things that impressed me about Neil was uh, just how much he remembered of the matches he'd played. He seemed to remember every shot he'd played. And you'll hear a little bit of an obsessional character, actually, but a thoroughly nice guy as well, very articulate, and I really, really enjoyed talking to him. So this is the Snooker Scene Podcast with Neil Robertson. Neil, I always start by asking players how they got into snooker, and it's a, usually a familiar story in the UK. It's usually their parents bought them a, a half-size table for Christmas. Growing up in Australia, what was your introduction? Um, I used to play um, snooker, um, well, actually nine ball um, and, and eight ball um, with my dad and my brother on weekends. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we did. I used to just play once a week. Um, I don't know, my brother and I would play for about half an hour or something and then we'd go play the arcade machines and stuff like that. Um, we would have been about 10, 10 or 11 years old. And um, So it was already in the family? Snooker was in the family? Uh, no, not really. My mm. dad didn't, didn't really play that much snooker. He just liked playing sort of pool and nine ball. Mm. I mean, he, he wasn't very good back then. He was, he was just played it casually. It was just something to do with his sons. Um, so, um, yeah, like my parents were divorced um, when I was about three or four years old so uh, it, it was just something that, that um, you know my dad and, and my brother and, and Mark um, my, my brother Mark and, and I could, could do that was uh, you know it was a lot of fun that the three of us could do together so um, yeah and then um, after sort of going to the same club for about six months um, my dad became interested in, in, in buying um, half of the business as, as the um, one of the owners was, was selling up so um, yeah my, my dad bought his share and then that's when we started to get into Q Sports more seriously. Mm. Um, you know, I used to play every uh, every Sunday morning 
Um, my dad used to run like a junior competition. I think, you know, obviously it gave Mark and I something to do. Mm. And uh, yeah, just used to play every Sunday mornings, you know, from probably age 11 to sort of 13. No. Um, yeah, it wasn't really, you know, like sort of playing four or five days a week. Mm. It was just like, you know, just a casual, nice thing to do. And But it didn't take me very long to become, you know, a lot better than the other juniors mm. and, and stuff like that. And then from the age of around 13 I, I, I used to practice a bit after school and uh, school holidays I did a lot of practice as well and was that seen as sort of unusual because a lot of the Australian sports that we think of are all outdoors because we associate your climate as being a lot better than ours mm. so was it was it, were, were your mates sort of thinking why is he playing snooker all the time uh, no not really I mean um, uh, I, I used to play like, all, like because I used to play like a little bit of snooker a little bit of eight ball a little bit of nine ball um, a lot of people in Australia play nine ball and eight ball casually um you know the participation in in those particular sports is those particular few sports is very high, um, so it's not that unusual at all, really. Um, yeah, I still love playing outside, like kicking the footy around, and yeah, all that sort of stuff. But it, you know, from when I was about sort of fourteen or fifteen, then it was just purely all mm. sort of snooker and and and, um, and eight ball and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah, and your junior career—it sounds like you developed pretty quickly and became mm. one of the best juniors, if not the best junior in the country, pretty quickly. Yeah, it didn't take long. I think um, you know, especially when I was when I was about sort of fourteen, I started to really, really dominate everything, even the under 18s and stuff like that, and compete really well in the under 21s. Um, that was when I started playing, probably about sort of like two or three days a week, um, and uh, yeah, and then it was just a natural progression through there. And then uh, when I left school, when I was 15, that was obviously when I started to take a, a lot more of a full-time approach to playing snooker. Mm. You turned pro when you were 16. How, how did that come about? <laughs> yeah, I still ask myself that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one thing that really annoys me when I see on the um, on the sort of like on the captions when like um, it says when I turned pro 98. So people think I've been consistently on yeah. the tour for so long. Where I mean, I was 16 and I was just absolutely nowhere near good enough. Um, the, the Oceania Championships was held at my own snooker club, right. not my That's dad's handy. one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I knew all the tables yeah. perfectly. Uh, they were really big pockets, so it suited me mm. at the time. And um, they took four players, so you, you had to make the semi-finals to, to get a professional tour card. And and I hadn't been past the last 16 of any tournament in Australia. Right. And then <laughs> I get to the semis of that one, and yeah. all of a sudden I'm going to England. So, um, yeah, I, I just wasn't prepared at all. I, I wasn't good enough, and I never... I just wasn't ready, you know. I had no plans whatsoever of coming to to England at 16. Mm. It was just I happened to sort of qualify, and then, you know, my dad thought it'd be a great experience for me to go over. What did you know of the professional circuit? Have you, did you even see the tournaments in Australia? Did you see any of it? Uh, no, we never used to get any 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 of the events. Um, I think around then they started to show it a little bit on the on the pay TV mm. uh, on Foxtel, but we just used to have to wait for the um, the videotapes to be sent over mm. from England, so we'd already know the results mm. um, and just. You know, wait for for somebody who would have recorded all the stuff on the BBC and then just send it to Australia. Yeah. Was there any question of you not coming? Because sixteen is young to suddenly come yeah. off around the world. Um, no, my dad was really super keen for, mm. for me to come over, and um, yeah, I guess I was as well, just to see what it would be like. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I had you know Steve Misford, Joel Younger, and Sean Budd that were also over there mm. um, with me. So um, yeah, that, they they looked after me really well when I came over, but. Um, yeah, I don't really have too many positives from the experience because I just wasn't anywhere near good enough. The tables were so much harder than what I was used to. I was used to playing on sort of big pockets on club tables um, and they were professional tables, tight pockets and the, the super fine cloths. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a bit of a nightmare. But, um, 
you know, I, I had a couple of sort of decent results. I mean, I beat Joel Younger, which was really funny. Yeah. We got drawn drawn against each other. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, overall it was it was it was um, you know it was a worthwhile experience just to sort of get a feel and see see what, how everything was. I think you told me once that you actually got relegated on it was your 18th birthday. You, you got re- played in the World Championship and lost to someone, and that was you off the tour. Yeah, I um, yeah. So I, I missed out the follow. Obviously, I, I, I fell off the tour my first year, and then. Mm. Uh, then I won the Oceania Championships when I was um, 18. Um, I was much more full-time player then. When I was 16, I was still kind of like a kid who's just left school mm. who doesn't really want to do anything. Mm. Um, so I kind of I didn't really dedicate to snooker 100% or, or anything. I, mean, I was just sort of lazing around. And, yeah. you know. But uh, when I was 18, I was, I was playing a lot more full-time and, and I was much more prepared for the tour. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had some promising results, actually. I, 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 did, I did pretty well. I think I won 10 matches. Um, and um, yeah, I lost 10-8 to Ian McCulloch in the World Championships mm. in the fourth round. Um, and I probably would have had a chance to get to the last round to play Tony Drago. So um, that that was a much better experience for mm. me. Um, I didn't do enough to stay on the tour, but I got um, a wild card. I had 10 wild cards that year. Yeah. Uh, and I got one of the wild cards. And then, um, so then that following season... Um, they changed the way the structure of the seasons were, um, the events were, where they weren't block qualifiers. You know, I could, I used to be able to come over from Australia, play the, you know, four four mm. qualifying events, and then just fly back home. Um, these were a bit more sort of um, spaces in between. There was only you know one one at like you know Burton on Trent, and then there's another qualifier like a month later. So I couldn't really fly back and forth. So I had to um, move somewhere in the UK and. Um, uh, Alan Perkins, Mark Selby's coach at the time, said that I could uh, stay with him and practice at Willie Thorns, and um, so yeah, I, I, I made the big move to to move over. Uh, and yeah, again, that that was, you know, wasn't the best experience because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm. You know, you go to Willie Thorns, I'm thinking like, oh, I'll get to play with all you know professionals mm. and really good playing conditions and like that, but it wasn't anything like what I thought it would would, would be. Um, yeah, there was one. <clears throat> there was one match table there, which was Willie Thorne's table, which um, Mark Selby kind of had the um, uh, had the priority, and and, and rightly so. Um, which left me to play on like the club tables and stuff, which was, you know, when you practice on club tables and then you go into um, the professional tables with the fine cloths and the, the much tighter pockets. Um, this made it pretty tough for me to adjust, and uh, my technique wasn't quite as good as what it is now to, to make those kind of adjustments. Um, so I actually really struggled, and then it didn't take long really before I really started to experience what homesickness was. And then I kind of, the last few months, um, was a little bit of a write off really. I, I just wanted to go home, I didn't really want to be there. It wasn't, you know, Leicester, um, you know, no, no disrespect to Leicester, but it's, it's definitely not Cambridge. <laughs> um, and so. Um, so yeah, I, I just really didn't enjoy my time there at all, um, and uh, yeah, but you know, I um, w- with the results I had earlier in the season, um, I uh, I had to win I think one one or two matches in the World Championship to keep my tour place, and uh, and I lost to James Reynolds ten nine on my birthday. Uh, that would have been my uh, my twentieth birthday. That would have okay, been right. yeah. So um, that sort of topped the whole trip. <laughs> <off really. laughs> and was there a sense? 
you, obviously, as you say, homesick, it's a difficult game, maybe a more difficult game than you thought when you were young. Mm. Was there a sense that this just isn't for me, maybe I should do something else? Yeah, it was very tough for overseas players back then. There was no bases to go, there was no academies, um, there was very few other overseas players on the tour, so... Yeah, I didn't really know know anyone, even though sort of you know getting to know Mark Selby quite well. Um, but the problem was, I was, I was, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I wouldn't have been far off. You know, I was just I was sleeping all day, so I was getting to the club really late, and Mark was there from sort of like you know nine thirty nine thirty in the morning till you know sort of three or four, and I was sort of coming into the club at around sort of three or four. So it was just um, complete sort of chaos, really, and. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I went back. That's when I sort of started to really sort of think about things. I thought, well, you know, do I really want this kind of lifestyle? Because I just, I didn't really, you know, the game was up in the air as well. Like, I mean, there was a lot of negativity around the sport, the sponsorship of the sport, with you know being heavily reliant on the tobacco sponsorship, and all that was evaporating. Um, even for a for a young person, how I was back then, you could see that the game wasn't run properly. Um, so how much longer is the game going to continue on for? You know, so um, yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of um, uh, sort of thinking to do with with myself and you know what I wanted to do. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I went back home and I had a little bit of a break and you know obviously really down, never been more down in my life before. Um, sort of just completely stopped practicing, didn't really want to play, uh, didn't really want to do anything. So I just kind of. Just went through each day, not not really doing much, just chilling out, playing video games, and you know, not really bothering looking for work. Um, you know, because the thing is that when you're so young and when you got aspirations of being a professional snooker player, professional sportsman, you know, you, you kind of think you're too good to work. And then <laughs> I sort of saw if I had to get a job as complete failure. Mm. And every, you know, all the, the kids from school <clears throat> knew that I was really good at snooker and had, had gone over to England. And then you know, if they're sort of like. Um, you know, I don't know, pulled into McDonald's or something and seeing me there flipping yeah. burgers, I yeah. thought, oh, I like that, you know, could just never allow myself to be, <laughs> you know, uh, like that. So, um, yeah, so I went to uh, I went to the job centre because, I mean, I had no income whatsoever. I was living with my brother in a, in a, in a tiny apartment. Uh, he was working full-time, a couple of jobs, so he was really helping me out as well financially. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so I was in the job centre and I was in the queue and... Um, and there was just people like there was a guy at the head of the queue at the counter. Sort of, he got like maybe he got denied his his dole check or something, and um, and uh, he started really kicking off and, and swearing at you know all the people that were working there. And I just sort of like was just looking around me, just seeing these type of people who were you know applying for the the dole, and I was like I just can't like allow. I, I just you know I'm just so much better than this. I you know I've got to go home and think of something whether it be snooker whether it be something else whether it be go do it like a course um like a tafe course get an apprenticeship something like that so um yeah i kind of went back had to think of things and um the australian under 21 snooker championship was coming up and so um i thought i'd play in that you know i still love snooker um but i didn't really practice i just um you know i practiced for maybe a week for it I, I went up and i played pretty well i made the, like the record highest breaking the under 21 championship i think it was like 142 I won that, which gave me a spot to go play in the World on 21s in uh, in New Zealand. And um, the, the funny thing was, though, is that winning the under 21s gave me full expenses paid to New Zealand. Um, now, originally, I wasn't going to play in the under 21s, even though I knew I would have got a spot to play in the World on 21s in New Zealand anyway, because they were taking eight Australian players. 
Um, but Mike Peach really convinced me to, to, to enter it because he knew that I was really down and that I didn't want to play, but he convinced me to enter it because of I'd get the expenses paid because come to the time of the World Under-21s, maybe I wouldn't have gone. I, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to get the money to, to fly over to New Zealand and, and play in it. So, so winning that gave me the, um, the, the expenses paid for. Um, but I was still really down, and then you know, I was just thinking, well, even if I win it, you know, it's not really going to do anything anyway. Because back then there weren't any tour cards for um, the World Under 21s or, or anything like that. Uh, and then I got an email off Keith Warren. Um, I got an email off Keith Warren who said that he'd been talking to Steve Misford and um, and uh, and Steve Misford was, was telling Keith how well I was sort of playing like from the back end of the, the Australian season. Um, I beat Steve in the final in the Australian Open. I think I beat him 8-0 or 8-1. Uh, and I played really, really well. Um, and um, so Keith obviously knew me from my time previously on the tour. Um, you know, he had sort of like um, you know, helped out a lot of the younger players, a couple of the overseas players as well. And um, and he sent me an email saying that, um, that there's every chance that there's um, there's going to be a, a wild card opportunity for you if you perform well in New Zealand because there was five overseas wild cards given um, which I didn't know about until then, and that was probably about a week before the, the World Under 21s. And so I was like, "Oh wow! Like, oh, this could be my chance." And so then I practiced really hard for the World Under 21s. Um, I performed really well through the group stages and got through. Um, my first uh, Keith had, had had told me after I qualified through the group stages that, like, like I was 99% sure going to get the tour card. So I was like, obviously, over the moon with that. Um, and then the first match I was playing Habib Subar from Bahrain, and I was it was first to five, and I was um, I was three nil down, and uh, but I didn't do a, lot, a great deal wrong. But then Keith sort of like walked in. I was thinking, oh my god, this guy's just giving me a wild card. I feel quite <laughs> terrible. And I had three nineties and a century to win uh, five three, and then um, uh, then I beat Alex Davies in the last sixteen five four. I beat Pankajivani in the quarters. That would have been maybe five one or five two. Uh, and then I beat um, Ding Junhui in a really good semi-final. Um, I think that was uh, what was the score there? It would have been about eight five or eight six then. Uh, and then I beat Louis Song in the final, eleven uh, five. Um, you know, played played really. I had three centuries to be five one up. Um, so that was kind of like the first time I'd really kind of um, performed like good enough to my sort of ability. You know, I played really well. And that world on a twenty ones like. You'll never see a better field than yeah, that ever. Yeah. You know, you had like Mark Allen in it as well, and many other sort of you know top players that were sort of top 32 and regular tour players now. So to win that event, you know, gave me a huge amount of confidence, and um, and yeah, it secured my tour card, and then uh, then yeah, then it was off off and ready to go. Yeah, and this brings us neatly to because we often hear about you. You came to the UK with 500 pounds in his pocket mm. and all, all this. I mean, is that actually the case? And where did you get the 500 quid from? Yeah, uh, my mum. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and why Cambridge? Why did you end up there? Uh, Phil Mumford was playing on their snooker tournaments in in Australia, and um, and he uh, the management position at the Cambridge Snooker Centre came available, and uh, he, um, he he emailed um, like Steve Misford saying that um, that there was a house up for rent right right next to the club mm. in the car park. Um, and um, 
yeah, so Steve got a hold of Joel Younger and, my, and myself and said, did you guys all want to share a house together? And I thought, like, perfect. You know, I've got, I can actually live with Australians. Didn't know anything about Cambridge. You know, I, I, you know my, my experiences of, of England was Blackpool, Leicester and Burton-on-Trent. So I was just like, <laughs> well, the whole place is just a wreck compared to Australia. So, you know... No uh, offence to anyone who lives in any of those yeah, places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and so... Um, yeah, so so we we moved over and uh, yeah, my mum just like gave me um, it was about like maybe eight hundred like a thousand dollars or something, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so that was like the money I had to sort of get me by the first kind of um, the first kind of like you know sort of four or five weeks or whatever, um, and my mother's um, my mum's partner Chris um, Chris Core he uh, he really helped me out a lot as well because he um, yeah he. Uh, he said that, like, you know, whatever happens, if you ever get stuck, um, then, you know, you can use, um, use like, uh, his, his bank card in emergencies. Right. So um, if, if there was any sort of situation where, like, I can just completely run out of money, that I wouldn't have to just go home or, mm. or borrow money in other ways. Uh, you know, at least I, I could sort of pay my travel expenses and stuff. So, I mean, it wasn't a magic wand that everything was for free at mm. all. Um, and I didn't, really, I didn't really use it that often because... Um, uh, I did at the start to help sort of you know pay for the entries and World Snooker were really good with the overseas players as well by um, by giving us um, um, fun helping us f- with funds to um, contribute towards our our flight um, so that made paying the airfare to come over much easier and yeah so um, what was I going to say so uh, yeah so we we ended up in Cambridge and straight away just a completely different place to anywhere else in the UK I'd been before the weather was really nice because it was in the summer as well um, a great feel about the whole city um, and living with Steve and Joel really helped a lot you know great friends of mine I'd known ever since I was like sort of you know 12 13 years old mm. and um, and the club was great as well because Joe Perry had just become the resident professional there Joe had left his his, his old club I think in Whiz Beach or something like that and um, Joe was just absolutely amazing with, with the three of us. Joe let us play on his table when we when when he had finished playing. Um, that was amazing for me. I wasn't allowed to do that at Willie Thorns. Um, so you know, Joe played a massive role in, in helping me improve and, and get used to the tables because you know it was, it was really really difficult because I was used to so much bigger pockets and such slower tables. So at least I could practice on Joe's and get ready for the tournaments by at least knowing how they're going to play and, and getting used to the tight pockets. So. Um, yeah, he was he was um, invaluable. Mm. I was going to bring Joe up because it's one of the most incredible things I've seen in the game. Is after you beat him in that final in China, mm. and of course at that stage you hadn't won a ranking tournament, and you beat him, and you were yeah. the one, you were the one in tears because you think, oh, I've denied my friend, you know, his big chance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I knew how much it meant to Joe, and um, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I thought, you know, maybe he may not win one mm. again, or you, you just never know. Yeah. So um, yeah, I was really emotional afterwards, and. Um, I was quite surprised actually how I was able to sort of ruthlessly sort of dispatch the match from 9-8 yeah. down to yeah. win 10-8, uh, 10-9 I think mm. it was. Um, so uh, yeah, it was just, you know, it was, it was, it was really tough. And, um, but I was, I was so happy for him when he won the, um, the player championship mm. uh, later on in the season. You know, seeing how relieved he was as well when he won it because, you know, Joe is like, you know, you see it, many other players have won tournaments and uh, Joe's like, you know, just as um, entitled to, to win tournaments as mm. they were. Um, so to see him 
you know, win that tournament. I was, I was so, so pleased for him. And um, then I didn't have to feel so bad about myself yeah, as well. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, you, so you're back on the tour. So this is like sort of early 2000s, I guess. And you sort of got a reputation of being a really sort of good potter. Mm. But, but that, that, at that stage, I guess, was the main part of your game. You hadn't developed then into the player on now in terms of the all-round yeah. game. But you, I guess you were learning all the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that, that was pretty much... Because I used to practice long potting all the time, mm. and, and I didn't really have anyone to teach me the sort of professional way of building breaks. I had mm. some really good coaches in Australia, who, well, good practice partners that were, you know, good for the conditions back home. But playing on the professional table is completely different altogether. Um, so, I guess in a way, uh, because I'm I'm really observant and I always pick up what people are doing. Practicing with Joe was was incredible, although he wasn't like a hands-on coach of telling me. Yeah technical things or anything like that by just basically pulling balls out for him you know losing 15-3 15-4 to him every day um, I, I learned a great deal and uh, and yeah you know once again he sort of you know he, he was extremely generous with his time and uh, and uh, yeah it goes to sh- it goes without any doubt that I, I wouldn't have progressed as quickly without without him mm. I think everyone thought you know you were a potential tournament winner, but until you actually do it, you know you, you've, actually, you've actually got to do it, haven't you? You've got to prove mm. it, and you did at the uh, ten years ago now at the Grand Prix in Aberdeen. What, what are your memories of that? I think it was a round robin early on in that, that tournament. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, I think uh, the World Championships the previous season, I got to the quarterfinals and lost thirteen twelve to Graham Dot. So mm. I think, and I'd already made a couple of quarterfinals, so I was kind of like you know starting to knock on the door. Um, and I, I really felt I, w- I could have won the World Championship that year and I would have been <coughs> 22 or 23. Uh, probably would have been 23, I think. And, um, yeah, I was, I, was, I, was, I was young enough and dumb enough to think <laughs> that I could win it. So I, I, I think I really could have done. Um, but, um, yeah, but I, I was very confident with my game. It was my first year getting into the top 16. Um, and then, yeah, the Grand Prix, it was, um, it was a round-robin format. Um, obviously, World Snooker were looking to, you know, change the formats of a few of the events. And um, yeah, so it was, it was a round robin format. Um, I lost the first match, I think, to um, Nigel Bond, three uh, two. So I had a lot of work to do to get out of the group, and, and I won the remainder of my games. Um, I think I even played Judd Trump in that. You know, I'm just trying to think. Did I? Yeah, I think I played Judd Trump in that. Yeah, so, yeah incredible. <laughs> you know, just to think he was like 16 or 17 or something. Um, I had uh, Joe Swire in my group and Ken Doherty, who who I had to um, who I had to beat to progress, and I beat Ken three one. And um, yeah, so I got through the group feeling really good and played Andrew Norman. I beat him 5 3. He played, he played very well. I did a really good clearance to win the last frame on the black. And then, uh, and then yeah, then I was due to play Ronnie O'Sullivan in the quarters, who back then was sort of seen as nearly unbeatable um, if his head was, was on the job, you know. So um, yeah, I, I, um, you know, that was like um, a real opportunity for me to. Uh, to try and sort of, um, you know, claim my, my place among, you know, the, the best players in the world. And, uh, yeah, I played a great, great match from, from memory. Um, the last two frames from 3-1, um, he's, uh, I think he's broken off. I've knocked in a long red off. I've won the frame off. And then the next frame off, he's left me a long red off a safety and I've knocked in and then won the frame off it again. And, um, and yeah, he, he was really... Um, he was really nice to me after the match. You know, he had a lot of really kind words to me to say, and uh, yeah, which also was really nice from him because um, you know you don't usually sort of see that from him unless he kind of really means it. So um, yeah, so uh, that that put me into the semi-finals, and I was, I was full of confidence, and I, I didn't think you know I thought I just had to sort of keep that up, and, and I'll have a great chance of winning. Mm. 
and, and you did win it. But here we are 10 years later, and there's quite a few players who've won tournaments, and they might not win another one. But you've won at least one title of some sort every year since. Mm. Quite, some years, quite yeah. a few titles. I mean, that's quite a proud record to have. You obviously got a taste of winning. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was... I was um... I think I was watching the replay on Eurosport with, when I won the, won the Riga Masters earlier the season, and I think you mentioned it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. Because I, I, I always thought I'd... I thought, yeah, I've won a tournament every year, but I never sort of really thought about how many, like, how many years it is consecutively by winning a tournament. And you know, to be the only player to do that, um, yeah, it's a quite incredible record. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously, obviously very proud of that. Um, but um, you know, maybe it might come to an end one day, but I, I really hope not. Um, so um, yeah, very, very very proud of that record, and uh, you know, goes to show, I guess, you know, how consistent I've been. But also, your game has improved, hasn't it, over the years as well? Because you've you've your break building in particular. We'll, we'll talk in a minute about the hundred centuries, but also, I guess, you had to learn the tactical game as well as you went along. Yeah, I, I was I was very unpredictable. I, I mean, um, even that <clears throat> that season when I won the Grand Prix and then won the Welsh Open in the two thousand six seven season, uh, I was very much all out attack. Um, it wasn't always reckless um, but it was not seeing a really good opportunity to play a really good safety shot when maybe that was a, a better alternative than, than playing for a long red so because sometimes you can actually be more aggressive by turning down a long red and actually playing a really good safety shot not many people sort of realise that um, so yeah that, that was something that I just I had to learn because I was getting tied up by Stephen Maguire all the time um, I actually found him harder to beat than, than Ronnie O'Sullivan and John Higgins because John Higgins and Ronnie O'Sullivan, they play quite aggressive and it's a it's a sort of like a different way of playing. But Steve and his safety was just so good and he'd score so heavy. His long potting was very good. Um, I just couldn't get anywhere near him. And, and he was the player I kind of looked at thinking like, you know, this in, unless I really improve my game, like I'm just going to be coming second best to this guy all the time. Um, because, you know, Stephen was, you know, he won the UK. He was seen as the next big thing. Um, to dominate the sport and so he was sort of like the benchmark for me in, in me trying to improve my game to uh, to compete with him with the safety But you were improving as a player but you were also gained a little bit of a reputation for being, how can we say, a little bit scatterbrained around around the tournaments um, in uh-huh. terms of preparation, I mean the one you at the Premier League you got on the wrong train and all that sort yeah. of thing I mean, obviously that wasn't deliberate but no, but, 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 but your sort of charge sheet you started to grow a little bit with things like that you like, you couldn't find your passport before one tournament and all this sort of stuff uh, yeah the um, the German Masters was coming up and I hadn't flown anywhere for a long time um, obviously we didn't have as many tournaments back then uh, and that was the year I was world champion and um, and Ronnie had just pulled out and uh, Nigel Oldfield got on the phone and called me um, because well before he called me in fact I actually told World Snooker I've lost my passport mm. And I was playing in two days' time. I thought, there's no way you can get a passport in that time. Um, and Nigel Oldfield called me back that day saying, Neil, mate, uh, just to let you know, Ronnie's pulled out of the German Masters. We cannot have Ronnie O'Sullivan pull out and the world champion. You have to get there. Mm. <clears throat> I was like, OK, mate, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> and so um, I spoke to Mum and Chris and they sort of did some research on the best way of, of quickest way of getting a passport. And so I took the next... I went down first thing in the morning, got a train to, um, to London, um, filled out all the paperwork, everything I needed to get a new passport to you know, prove that I was, I, was, I was playing in the tournament and all this sort of stuff. They were getting it all processed, and then the next morning I had to go back down to, um, to London 
um, with my snooker cue in my bags. <laughs> I had to go straight from the, the place where I picked up the passport straight to Heathrow, fly to German Masters the day I was playing, got beat by Anthony Hamlin, 5-4 and flew back home. So I was like, I did my bit for World Snooker, but I really wish that I didn't go. <laughs> he, play, he had three centuries. He played really well, actually. Yeah, he did. He played really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he did. I, yeah, I, I didn't play terrible by any means, but I was just... I was absolutely wrecked. So, um, but there was also you at the crucible. I think I'm right in saying you t- you'd forgotten your shoes. You yeah, to go and buy yeah, a pair yeah. Of shoes. I had absolutely everything, <laughs> and then I, I just left. I left my shoes, and um, I was getting ready to play Stephen Maguire in the last sixteen. And uh, you know, I put I put my shirt on, my trousers, waistcoat, put on my bow tie, and then no, oh, yep, and I put on my socks, and I'm like, yep, okay, I'll just get my shoes. Oh, where are they? <laughs> And so this is like I don't know an hour before I'm playing mm. my match, and so we've we've gone down to the crucible, and then. I uh, just gone to the shops across the road and I've, I've picked out a pair of shoes and they weren't uncomfortable but they looked horrendous and that was really in my mind in the match mm-hmm. and um, and Stephen played really well and he was like but you know he won the first second and third frame I'd made a couple of mistakes and I was just thinking oh god these shoes must just look awful on TV and uh, yeah I went well I went 9-0 down mm-hmm. in the match and um, yeah I actually, I actually fought back pretty well I, I fought back to 11-7 uh, so I won seven out of the next nine, and then um, I think he, kn- he knocked in a great long red, made 100, and then that, that, that was pretty much it. Well, let's start at the cruise, but let's talk about 2010, because obviously that was your, I guess, the highlight of your career. It had to be becoming world champion. But of course, early on, second round, you're 11 5 down to Martin Gould, mm. and you actually said you checked out the hotel. Did you think there was any hope there at 11 5? Um, certainly not at 6 0. Hmm. Um, and that's the thing as well, you know, like people say, um, oh, yeah, you know, like you know, Martin Gould in the last 16, but the way Martin played in that match, if that was Ronnie O'Sullivan mm. or <clears throat> Judd Trump, they'll be saying that is one of the best performers they have ever seen. He played ridiculous snooker. Mm. He was going for, like, the craziest of long pots. You know, he was, like, running out of position on the black, and he's knocking in a long yellow when the white was, like, on the top cushion. Mm. I mean, it was just madness, and the balls were open. Mm. Like, nobody would, would, would do that. But he was just going for everything, and everything was just flying to the back of the pocket. And um, so I did really well to win the last two frames to make it 6-2. Um, and then I thought, well, there's no way he can play like that in the next session. And so the nighttime session, he's doing the exact same thing. <laughs> he's just, like, everything's just flying in. I can't really get my hand on the table to make an influence on the match. And I've done really well again to just hang in there and only lose 5-3. I think probably a lot of other players in the, in, in, in the tournament would have been home already. So to be 11-5 uh, down, you know, I think Sean Murphy had come back a couple of years before against Matthew Stevens from that deficit. But So I was uh, due to check out, uh, yeah, I was, I was due to check out the, uh, the, the next day. And, uh, yeah, obviously I didn't renew because I was staying in apartments so you've got to renew for a week. And I, I told the lady, no, not to renew, like... Um, <clears throat> Am I, is it okay if I just like leave my bags mm. and then pick them up sort of like pretty much when I could beat mm. um, but then something interesting happened Steve Davis was playing John Higgins in the last 16 and I knew that the winner of our match was playing the winner of that match and I knew that Martin would have an eye on that especially being 11-5 up he's probably thinking that um, you know well I'll see I'll see how John's playing you know and then see if there's anything I can exploit and uh, but Steve Davis was, was, was winning the match and um and I was thinking, like, I was praying for Steve to win because not not so much the fact that um, playing John Higgins is a much tougher proposition than, than Steve Davis at the time, but because that I knew that Martin would be watching that match or he'll definitely be aware of it mm. and that 
if Steve Davis were to win, Martin would see that as probably the best opportunity yep. he'll ever have of, of getting to the semi-finals yep. of the World Championship. And so I really fed off that. And I thought, you know what, this, this could give me a bit of a bit to work with here. So we went into the evening session. I was 11-5 down. Obviously, I've got to beat him 8-1. Mm. I mean, it's crazy when you think mm. that you've actually got to win eight of the nine <laughs> frames. And, um, yeah, I could see that he, he was a bit, little bit hesitant on, on the crazy balls he was going for. He wasn't going for so many the same way. Um, he was playing sort of more full-length screw um, pots, trying to sort of get good cue balls rather than going all out attack, which he was doing previously. And I, I, I really picked up on that. And then, then I, I, I went on to the aggressive. Um, when uh, I think I went 11-7, he was starting to make a couple of mistakes. And then, um, then I, I really went on the front foot and started to put him under a lot of pressure. I was playing immaculate safety. Um, the, the crazy balls that he was going for, they weren't going in. And I got back into the match really well. And, um, you know, I got back to, uh, I think, um, was I 12-10 down in the end? So I won five out of the first six. Mm. Uh, and then I was really confident from 12-10. Um, because all I wanted to do basically was just get it to an interval, get... <clears throat> My goal was to get it to 12-8, and then then I can really sort of apply some pressure. But you know, to, to get in at um, which was uh, what would it have been? It would have been um, 11 uh, 11-9. Yeah, yeah, 11-9. Um, and then obviously he went 12-10 up. Um, but I, I played a really really good match. You know, obviously he didn't maintain that perfect snooker because it's impossible to play three sessions in a row like that. So uh, yeah, I played really really well. And Stephen Hendry said that. Um, in the decider, I knocked in a really good long red. It was do or die, uh, and if I missed it, I, I would have gone out. And I, um, I, I knocked it in, and, and I made a really good sort of uh, crucial fifty odd break to put me in a commanding position on the last red. And then I, um, you know, put him in trouble off the last red, and 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 cleared up to the brown or whatever it was mm. to win. So you get to the final, and uh, but also your mother has come over uh, during the semi-final, and I don't think she'd ever the seen final. you. I think she came over during the semi-final. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think she'd ever seen you play professionally before. So obviously, uh, no. Obviously, obviously, very proud that she's there. But also, were you thinking, oh no, she's flown all this way. If I don't win now, it's going to mm. be like a real letdown. Yeah, because uh, the quarterfinals, I, you know, I, 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 um, I beat Steve, thirteen-five or something mm. like that. Um, and then Ali Carter probably had never played better as a professional <laughs> in the semis, being. Um, <coughs> what was I ahead of Ali? I was. Uh, Six two, uh, I think I was like ten. I was ten six up with like four centuries mm. and um, and um, playing really really well. Just like you know, there wasn't a great deal he could do about it. My safety was was unbelievable. I was scoring so heavy. My long potting was unbelievable. Um, so I thought, yeah, you know, like. And then I've, I've I had a little bit of a dodgy session against Ali, the, the final session, because I was fifteen nine in front, and mm. I was just thinking about like when Paul Hunter lost lost the match against Ken. Mm. I was thinking, just don't do the same, and. Um, so I had a little bit of a wobble where he won the first sort of few frames of, of, of that session, but I ended up winning sort of 17-13, I think it was. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then, then I, I, I turned my phone on after I've, I've won the semi-final. I'm full of confidence. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, she left a voicemail saying that um, uh, they'd just left Singapore. Uh, you're 10-6 up at the moment. Uh, keep it going. We've just left Singapore. We've, we're we're going to get there to watch watch the final, um, my mum and, and, and Chris. And uh, I was like, oh, wow. At first I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Yay, like, you know, my, my family can come and see me. Uh, it would have been great my dad to come over as well, but he's not as... Um, <laughs> 
I don't know, he didn't really sort of think about sort of booking flight and flying <laughs> over during the semi-final. So, um, so um, yeah, but what it did, it put me under a huge amount of pressure. Um, now that I've won, I'm so happy she came over. Yeah. But if I had lost, I could never <laughs> be angry at her. Yeah. But it was a huge distraction because mentally I just wasn't prepared. Um, and when she's come over, obviously that was the first time I'd seen her for about 10 months yeah. as well, you know. So that was very, very emotional seeing yeah. her. And it just, yeah, it was, it was a complete distraction. I kind of lost my focus with that sort of destroyer mentality which I had where I'm mm. just, I'm going to win this final. Whoever I'm playing, I'm going to win it like 18-8 or something. Like yeah. I'm just going to destroy whoever I'm playing. Yeah. I, was, I was playing so well. And then, um, you know, and then the final against Dot, like I've, I've come out and uh, like come out and then gone to sit down and she was there waving and uh, I almost started crying. Mm. And so I'm playing like the first frame almost with tears in my eyes mm. and I was 3-1 down and I was just like, you know, I've got to shake out of this. And um, I sort of recovered pretty well to be 5-3 down in the first session. Um, second session I played really well actually. I, I got back to um, from 5-3, I think I was 8-5 uh, up and um, Graham sort of like came back a bit. Um, I think it was a pretty crucial part of the match because... I think if I won one of the next two sort of frames and then maybe could have been 10-6 up, 10-5, then I think I would have really pushed on and, and, and won the match, like, you know, convincingly. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, he sort of he kept sort of clawing back. And then the overall standard was very good. The, the first two sessions, like, we both were above 90% pot success. It was a very, very high-quality match play snooker, you know. The, um, the ball sort of went scrappy in a lot of the frames. And... Um, you know, so the, they were longer drawn out frames, but it was still very good. I think, like, um, you know, I think up to like the first sort of um, 14 frames that I had won in the final, I think I had 12 breaks over 50. So I was, I was playing well. Um, but then, you know, unfortunately, probably people just remember like, you know, the last session, which was a really long drawn out affair. Um, the, like, the times got changed as well, and we, we didn't do what you did, what you do now is where you play that extra frame. And believe yeah. it or not, that makes a huge difference. Right. Um, so I think I was like, um, what would I have been? It would have been 24 frames. So I would have been, uh, it would have been what, 13, 11 overnight or something like that. <coughs> I think that's what it would have been. Yeah, 20, I, I, I honestly been can't remember, but yeah, you were ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So then, um, and then the next session, then it was, um, you know, going into the, uh, into the last session, um, it might, actually, you know, I think it may have even been 12, 11. Right. I think we sort of like had to come off a little yeah. bit earlier. And um, yeah, but I just remember that that sort of that spell in the sort of like the third session and, and fourth session. That every time I kept sort of winning one or two frames, Graham just kept winning another one back, and then you know, sort of one of us would make fifty odd or, or sixty to mm. leave the other person needing three snookers on the last red, and then the frame was going for another twenty minutes because that person just wouldn't give that frame yeah. up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a final world championship. You carry on for if you need four snookers, you're going to carry on, and you know anything can happen. That mm. frame could be vital, and uh, yeah. So the longer those frames got drawn out, the more tired we both became. And then, obviously, the last sort of few frames, um, I potted an unbelievable pink to go. Um, <clears throat> I think to go 16, 12 up instead of 15, 13, and then that that, that was sort of like the killer blow. I think even though he he won the next frame, um, I, I won the next comfortably, and then. Well, I won the last last comfortably as well. Yeah. So what's that feeling like at the end? You know, it's it's every snooker player's ambition to be world champion, but you're there, your mother's there, the Australian flag, you stood there with the trophy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You can't get any better than that. But did no. it did it sink in immediately? Or? Uh no, because I mean, yeah, that was just like the 
the best sort of way I could imagine mm. kind of winning it. Maybe apart from having like you know my dad and my brother yeah. there as well. Um, <coughs> but to be there with the Australian flag and you know all that sort of stuff, it was great pictures for the media back home as well. Um, and it never sunk in because obviously you know you're kind of doing all the interviews and mm. stuff straight away and. Um, but then Mike Ganley said, uh, oh, just wait a minute, buddy, I'll just, like, introduce you, like, to the party. And uh, that's the first time I had, like, sort of 10 seconds to myself. Mm. I was like, and then that was when it was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I want it, I want it, I want it. Um, and then, yeah, and obviously, you know, had, had a really good time at the party. Um, spoke to my dad for, like, hours on the phone, uh, media back home. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time. How important was it then to, to press on and, and win the other big tournaments? Because you've since, obviously, won the UK, the Masters. Was it important to, like I say, press on and, and sort of join the, the players who've done that? Yeah, I mean, it was quite funny because even back then, you know, the game was in a really tough spell because that, that season when I won the World Championship, I also won the Grand Prix. So I won, and we only had six ranking events. So yeah. I won two out of the six <laughs> ranking events. Um, and you didn't know where the game was going, you know. There was obviously that big, um, the big, uh, the, the vote with, with Barry Hearn and, and John Davidson, you know, like where, where is the future of the sport going? Because um, it wasn't looking great, um, but Barry came in and um, changed things up a lot. And uh, yeah, it's just incredible sort of the way it's gone because, you know, I was thinking when I won the World Championship, I think was that my fourth or fifth ranking title so, yeah. that I'd won? Um, it was my fifth ranking title that I'd won, sort of. So I'd set a goal to win, sort of, um, you know, eight or nine or something, because mm. I just didn't know how many more tournaments we were going to be playing or, <laughs> yeah. or seasons. You know, nobody knew. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty at the game back then, um, and especially if you're playing six events a season, it's pretty hard. To, sure, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, so yeah, for, for the tour to expand the way it has, and then you know, it's made it much better for the top players as well. Um, and it's given me a much much better chance to win these great events, and then you know, obviously winning the world championship the next target was to win one of the UK or the Masters and then once I won the Masters it was then to really try and win the UK to win the, the Triple Crown so um, yeah but you couldn't I mean you couldn't have done much more you've been world number one world champion UK Masters all the rest but has that been reflected in the coverage you get back in Australia I mean are you a big deal there or is it still snooker still no one no sport? I've given up like yeah. with back home yeah I get like I would never be jealous of, of another player. Um, that's not really my thing at all. I think anyone who kind of deserves his success, they've had to earn it. But, um, you know, it's sort of... I wouldn't say it's hard to take because the impact that Ding has had on snooker has been wonderful and given us all so many playing opportunities. Yeah. You know, there's like five or six events in China every, every season sure. now. So, you know, but I kind of look at that, the way China have um, you know, embraced Ding and that, and then, you know, I go home and... Um, you know, it's just like, it's just nothing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, after I won the World Championship, I got a lot of recognition. Like, I went back home, I did a lot of TV stuff, mm. um, all this. But the problem is, if, if you're a top if you're a top sportsman in Australia and if you're in another country, it's going to be really hard work for you to, to get the exposure mm. and, and to build your profile because, you know, you're out of the limelight for, mm. for so long. Um, and obviously the time difference when we're playing these matches and, you know, and they're not really showing the matches live uh, apart from the world final they've never shown a match live in Australia before so that makes it really difficult but I've kind of accepted that now it is what it is you know snooker's not it's not it's not big in Australia it's it's popular for people to play casually but it's not a big sport in Australia so um, I've accepted that and you know that that's just the way it is 
you know, it, it would be nice to get the same endorsements that Ding gets in China. Yeah, I'm but, sure it would. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, that's just just the way it is. I, yeah. I've had a, I've had a great great career so far, and I've got a long way to go as well. Well, one thing that they should certainly be talking about in the papers there was the, the season three years ago when you made the, the hundred centuries, hundred and three centuries in the end in one season, which was just unprecedented. Of course, you went to the Crucible though on, in the nineties, didn't you? And there was kind of a lot of talk about it. Did that sort of put you off a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that was. Um, it actually had a really bad effect on, uh, I think, three or four events leading into the World Championships. Mm. I went out pretty early because my goal was to, to try and get them out of the way yeah. by the time sure. the Crucible came yeah. along so it wouldn't be a distraction. Yeah. <clears throat> and I never did anything stupid in the matches. Like I never went for anything really risky where I was, I was risking a frame to mm. make a, a hundred. Um, but it was on my mind to make make every 70 or frame winning potential opportunity a century yeah. you know just get them out of the way um, you know because uh, it seemed throughout the whole season I was just scoring so heavy um, you know making a lot of big breaks um, I was playing in a lot of the events as well which I don't really sort of do now um, so um, yeah and then I think I was leading into the world championships so I was on what was I on was I on 91 92? in the 90s certainly yeah because people kept mentioning made, Don uh, Bradman, didn't they? They kept bringing up Don yeah, Bradman. Yeah, I think I made ten in the tournament. So I finished with a, did I finished hundred and three. Yeah, two against Selby, one against Judge. So I was. Uh, it seemed to me though in the end. Ninety three. Yes, yeah. so I was on ninety three. Yeah, yeah. It seemed to me in the end, what happened was because you were behind against Judge Trump, you forgot about it, and that actually allowed you to then play with the freedom to make them. Yeah, because the first match I played, um, I played uh, Robbie Williams, and I had four. Yeah. And um, I played like unbelievable. It was just like you know, yeah. I think I finished off with back-to-back centuries mm. as well. So, and then I'm thinking 97, and I've got a best out of 25 against Mark Allen. You know, very very attacking player, and you know plays the game in the right way. So, but well, I've got a great chance. If if if, if I played really well against Mark Allen, I've got a great chance. And um, so I had two in the match going into the final session. <coughs> and uh, yeah, and and off playing, you know, unbelievable and. Um, I missed a, I missed a, not an easy black, but one I definitely should have potted. I rattled it to make the hundred century, and then, um, and then the next frame I've missed a red down the cushion on ninety odd. Um, <coughs> so it left me on ninety nine. But I think, well, I've got a best out of twenty five against Judd, very attacking player. There's no way I can't make a century in this match. Um, but you know, he started off very well, and I was very, very cautious around the table. I was just like, every time I potted a red, I was like, okay, just make the century now, and then focus <laughs> on the rest of the match. And the, the further that match went away from me, I was 6-2 down. I was thinking, oh, my God, don't tell me I can be stuck on 99 centuries like, for the season. Like, that would just like, it would absolutely kill me. But the thing is, that would still be a great achievement, but it's not yeah, the same it as getting 100. No, no, that's <laughs> right. I think um, yeah, I was, I was even telling myself, like, just even if you make a century and lose, you'll still be like, happy. You know, I, was yeah. just, like, I was just thinking just the, the desperation became that when I was, you know, the fact that, you know, I could be the first one to make it 100 centuries. You know, not the second or third guy who's made 100, like the very first guy, the first guy who sort of broke through that barrier. Mm. And then to be left on 99, it just would have been absolutely devastating. And then I was 6-2 down. Um, he started to sort of maybe second-guess himself a little <coughs> bit. He, he didn't really sort of put his foot down, um, allowed me to get back into the match. Um, and then the second session, I won 5-3. Uh, so I was only 9-7 down. I, was, I still didn't look like making a century. <laughs> But at least I was back in the match, um, and then uh, th- then from nine seven down, I-, I played just incredible. 
sort of high class. I mean, I don't really like the word match play because I think that when someone gets called a match player, it's sort of like a little bit of a backhanded compliment where they're not like a, a really good scorer. Um, I think that it's sort of a little bit harsh on Mark Selby sometimes, but you know, he's such a wonderful player. But I did play what I guess you could call like really traditional match play snooker where the, 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 um, the safety was immaculate, um, you know, scoring sort of like, you know, sort of 50, around 50 sort of breaks most frames. Um, and just didn't really give him a shot, and um, and I think when it was uh, was it eleven all um, was was when I finally got a good chance mm. amongst the balls, and um, obviously I was aware. I mean, every time I was coming to the table in that tournament, I was counting the reds. Is there ten <laughs> reds on the table? Yeah, we make a hundred. Um, but that time I wasn't thinking about it. It was yeah, first the match time. was more important. Then. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wasn't thinking about the century, and then obviously I'm, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm potting the balls and that I've got to fifty odd. Now I'm aware there is a century on, but the, the frame is, is easy. You know, mm. it's just sort of rolling a couple of reds, a couple of blacks, no problem. Um, and then I could finally concentrate on the century, which was the first thing, um, first time I was able to concentrate on making a century break since, since playing Mark Allen. And then, um, yeah, I went on to do it. I've never been more relieved. Even, <laughs> even now, I've never been more relieved. Any match that I've won sort of in a decider or I've come back mm. from, from nowhere to win, I've never been more relieved than that when I, when I knocked in the green to make the century. And I just mm. smashed the brown 100 mile an hour just in absolute relief to go 12-11 in front. And then um, the crowd went absolutely nuts and, and still to this day I've never experienced a crowd sort of cheer louder than that in my life. So, uh, yeah, and then 12-11 up. Now I'm thinking, oh, even if I lose, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I've done it. I've made the 100 centuries. Um, and then, then I went the next frame as well. Did, did quite a good clearance to win 13-11. Yeah. Mm, incredible achievement. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about off-table off life. Obviously, you have your son. You're, you're a big Chelsea fan as well. But you're also into this... Uh, we're quite a mysterious world for a lot of people. Video gaming, I'm not quite sure what exactly it is because I don't follow it myself, but I, I read a lot of your Twitter. You talk about oh, yeah. all that. What, what is all that? Yeah, no, I just love, like, I love playing video games. Yeah. Um, I play them to a, to a pretty good level, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, like um, a really good friend of mine, he um, plays World of Warcraft. He's like a raid leader, so he... like he, he, he's... Well, already, what is that? Yeah, that's it's <laughs> Basically, it's, it's, like, it's somebody who... Is is responsible for how sort of pretty much how twenty five people perform. Okay. Um, so you all go in together. There's twenty five of you. You you go in together and and you've got to um, defeat like the boss to progress through. It's like Dungeons and Dragons or something mm. like that, but a you know much more advanced version. And it's a very hard game to play because um, what I like about it is is that you know you get personal satisfaction with playing the game to a great level. Um, and with whatever I do in life, I've always got to try and do it the best I can. Yeah. I can never be average at something. So there's been times where I've been really obsessed with that game or other mm -hmm. video games like um, like FIFA, for example, which I don't play because I uh, I got probably obsessed with that and was playing until like sort of 5 a.m. <laughs> the birds are tweeting outside. I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to play Joe Perry at like 10 in the morning. <laughs> Frank, I'm going to get like three and a half hours sleep. Mm. Or I've got to get up with Alexander, take him to school, mm. like two and a half hours sleep and go to the club. So... I've gone through I've gone through many spells like that where it's definitely I think it's really cost me um, preparation for certain events um, uh, but then it's also really helped me when I've travelled overseas by taking my gaming laptop with me and it's a great way of killing time where some other players sort of go a bit mad because um, I was going to say because some players you see them and they tend to spend all their time together like they'll sit around and, event, and eventually you kind of run out of things to say whereas you, you you're very definite you know what you'd like to do mm. and you, you appreciate private time as well Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry were like that they wouldn't necessarily be with the players all the time they, they followed the sort of things they wanted to do 
Yeah, I've noticed that. I mean, it, it was it was it was really hurting Joe Perry's career. I, I almost felt like pulling him aside. I said, like, you can't just keep doing this. You know, you, you're you're mingling with all these people you're trying to compete against, yeah. and um, I just felt he was like almost there where he wasn't treating it like he was actually at a tournament. It's just mm. like a way of getting. He was just getting away, and he was just sort of mucking around with 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 you know Barry Hawkins and co. So um, he sort of changed that a lot now, actually. Uh, he seems a lot more focused at tournaments, and, and you know he's he's become sort of top ten player in the world because of that. Um, yeah, I like talking to other players. Like I've got no problem sort of mingling with other players and stuff like that. But it's you know I'd I'd rather sort of be relaxing, getting my mind, mind focused for for the next matches and and things like that. You know I don't really like to sort of spend loads of time sort of talking about snooker sure. when I'm not playing matches and yeah. you know stuff like that I like to that's why I love playing my video games I like to like zone out sort of forget about snooker um, also uh, collect our Warhammer figurines which is like another like a tabletop um, strategy game where you actually build the models you, you put them together and you, and you actually paint them right. uh, so I really enjoy doing that too so I've got a couple of really good things that I can do mm. um, at tournaments and yeah, like the World Open earlier this year in China. Um, you know, the internet wasn't very good. I didn't, I didn't actually bring my gaming laptop. I took my uh, Warhammer figurines and I took all my paints and brushes and that. And I, um, and, and I was just, I was painting in between right. matches. I was okay. painting in my room, having a really good time, and just you know do, doing that because, you know, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm quite multi-talented. Where you know I paint them to like a really good level. Um, they've even put them in, put some of my miniatures in the in the cabinets in, in the shop in Cambridge. So okay, yeah. it does seem though like you said you have to be the best at everything. You seem like a little bit of an obsessive in a way. Even the way you've talked about your career, you seem to remember almost every shot you've played. You know this recall yeah. from you. Obviously, you're a bit of a thinker. Yeah, I, I could probably um, I could probably go through every single match I played in the prof- as a professional. <laughs> Whatever I do, I do it to the best of my ability. Mm. I think I've heard Ronnie Sullivan talk the same. When he's done his running, he does it as if yeah. he's the training to be in the yeah. Olympics. When I do something, whether it be video games, whether it be my Warhammer figurines, um, whether it be kicking the, the, the football around with Alexander, you know, I've got to try and be as good as I can be at it. It's just something that I've always done. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I've definitely been obsessed with video games where it's got to the point where... It has had a negative impact on my sort of snooker. You know, there's been many times where I've, you know, I should be going to practice, but I've, I'm staying to play FIFA to win a Division One title or something <laughs> like that, so I can brag to everyone. Right, yeah. You know, so there's definitely been sort of moments in my career where I've where I've done that. Uh, I wouldn't say I've I've not. I wouldn't. I would never say I haven't been dedicated to snooker. Uh, it's probably certainly hasn't been to the level of someone like Mark Selby, but he, because he doesn't really have those sort of other sort of passions. Mm. It's not that I don't love snooker. It's just that like I get hooked on so many other things sure. that are really sort of fun to do. Mm. Like I, fi- I, I find these things so much fun, and it kind of dr- drives Joe mad when he hears me talking about it in the club. He's like, <laughs> you know, you're 34. Like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this. He goes, yeah. my little girls are, are doing this sort of stuff. I can understand it with your son. And he goes, well, this is just ridiculous. Mm. But, but on the other hand, Alexander loves it. You know, I can. Yeah do all these things with him as well like he 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 paints like the figures with me mm. and it's just a really good thing to do so um yeah I, I i do have a goal throughout the rest of my career is to do a certain amount of um practice each day mm. before i allow myself to play video games and that which i don't do anymore i don't i don't get up in the morning and think oh yeah maybe i'll just like play for an hour and then i'll go to the club i don't do that in the morning. i get up you know take alexander school and then i'll um i'll i'll, I'll go to the club and, and do my practice 
and then I'm free to for, free to do what I want afterwards. You mentioned Joe Perry there. Just recently in China, um, you played him, and there was a mysterious incident where you seemed to do a bit of a quins and hands. To mention one of your, your old pals, uh, what was the story there? Well, that, that that was like pretty much what I've been talking about. Is that because I've been like you know, playing World of Warcraft again? I've been sort of like raiding with my friend and that, and really enjoying playing the game. You know, like you know, Alexander goes to bed, and then you know, Miller's doing. Um, she's doing her masters at Cambridge University, doing okay. criminology. So she's um, so she's studying. When Alexander's gone to bed, she's like studying really hard. So I got a bit of time to play my games. I'm like, yeah, great, you know. And um, so I took my gaming laptop with me. It's a big Alienware laptop. It has its own carry-on case. It's that big, like the monitor's huge. Like you've seen it in the yeah, championship yeah, league. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. It's a big thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, so I took it with me. I didn't bring my Warhammer figurines because I thought that the I, I trust that I trusted um, that the internet was was going to be good where where we were going. Um, so I didn't bring my Warhammer <laughs> figurines or my paintbrushes or anything. So I took a bit of a gamble that the internet would be good. And when when we got to Daoqing. The hotel was great, um, everything like that, the playing conditions were great, but there was absolutely nothing to do. And I mean nothing to do. There was a Starbucks which was outside the hotel, and that was it. You, there was, there was like 100 channels, 99 of them were Chinese um, <laughs> spoken language, the other one was CNN. The, the internet was like pretty much like from the Stone Age. You know, if you go into like something like, um, you know, you check the football results on BBC, you got to like, you click the web page and it loads after about two minutes. Right, yeah. It was insane. Like you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't um, watch YouTube videos or anything. And the, what I really love doing is when I'm like playing my games or if I'm like painting, I love listening to stuff on YouTube or watching mm. people play games or, or or painting guides, other sort of stuff going on in the background. Um, so all I had was CNN going 24-7 and I couldn't play my games I couldn't go on the internet I couldn't do anything I was just kind of like you know what am I doing and um, I noticed that other players were mingling and I was thinking well you know but then yeah you're getting sort of like nudged in the ribs every two minutes to mm. sign this or to sure. autographs and stuff like that and you know it's kind of I have no problem whatsoever in signing things but you know, when it when it's in a player's sort of downtime, when he's trying to sort of relax in between mm. matches, it can get a little bit much sometimes in China. And um, so, yeah, I, I went kind of mad over there. I um, <laughs> I uh, was really jet lagged. I was just sleeping until sort of three p.m. every day. And um, I was, you know, getting up, playing my match, uh, then going to bed, and then you know, sleeping like fourteen hours a day, and, and, and not really doing anything, not really eating properly, and just. Because every time I was waking up, I was thinking, "Well, what am I going to do? I'm just going to stare at my stare at the four walls for like you know six hours," and um, and it just it really affected me psychologically. It was very interesting because um, you know never at all do I ever get sort of annoyed in matches or anything like that. And so I was due to play Joe Perry, and I was I was very much up for the match. I thought, you know, right, come on, you know, like get focused. And uh, the first two matches I played in the international was on the match table or one well on table two which is the, the table next to the match table and they're on their own with the crowd the back tables um, are in a separated uh, a separate part altogether to the venue and so when Joe Perry and I walked out Joe played his previous two matches on there so he kind of knew what to expect I'd never seen anything like it before <coughs> we walk out there was a table which was Joe and I's um, and then there was five tables which were completely empty, which they used earlier in the week when there was a lot of matches to be played. So in between the five, t- after the five tables, <coughs> there was Judd Trunt's table when he was playing James Watana. And instantly I thought, 
why on earth are they not playing my match and Joe's match and, and Judd's match next to each other? Why not just have the two tables mm-hmm. together? At least there might be some sort of atmosphere. So I've, I've walked out, myself, Joe Perry, the referee, and the person doing the scoring. And there was three people in the crowd. Uh, three people. So could you imagine walking out to play a last 16 match of the International Championship? Could you imagine somebody walking out to, to play in the Crucible with three, three mm. people in the crowd? And, um, and I looked at Judd's end, and he had about five or six people, and three of them were James Watana's mates that <laughs> flew over from Thailand. Yeah. And, um, and I, I let it bother me, and uh, you know, I thought, like, why are they doing this? Because I think it's a disgrace in China where they charge so much for the ticket prices that they just... You know, they, they make it unaffordable for the people that really want to watch the games. And, and it, cre- it makes no atmosphere whatsoever. I can understand it when in the qualifiers, you know, in Preston or something like that, perhaps, where we play these qualifying venues. You're, you're prepared for that. I wasn't prepared to play in front of three people. You know, basically, the, there was more people involved on the actual table than there were actually watching. And, um, and there was this guy, out of the three people there, there was a guy who was in the front sort of row bit, sort of, sort of close to our table, and I was, I was playing my shots. And I noticed he was not on one mobile phone, but he was on two mobile phones. He was texting and stuff with a smile on his face. And, yeah, it was all sort of, a, a, I don't know, it just seemed like a bit of a joke to him. And I, I kept sort of like clicking my fingers to get his attention. The referee was kind of telling him, but he kept getting the phone out, and I just sort of got very, very frustrated. Um, you know, Joe won a couple of close frames, and I was, I was just like, you know... Well, yeah, I don't know. I've never really experienced anything like that before. Um, but there was mo- so. But there's a moment before you smash the pack where you must think you either decide to do it or not. Yeah, I yeah because. Um, so why did you? Yeah, I was three one down at the interval, and then then it was like four one five one, and I just then at at this stage there's nobody watching whatsoever, <laughs> and I was just thinking, like, I don't know. I really don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking to give Joe an easy chance mm. so he could. Um, just finish off the match and so I could uh, move on to uh, Guangzhou. It's almost like a cry for help almost. Yeah, I was just yeah. like, I, I, I don't know. I just, um, I mean, I did it and I, uh, it was almost like in slow motion in my head and I was about to hit the wire. I was thinking, just stop, don't do it. And the balls just went absolutely everywhere. Um, and the funny thing was I actually got safe and Joe missed a really easy red because I think he was a bit unnerved by it. He certainly would have been very surprised by it because I've never even done anything like that in practice. And, um, and I've ended up winning the frame. And the problem is I'm 5-2 five, two, five, two down. But there's probably a chance I could get back into the match. I'm thinking, well, oh, like, what do I do? I, like, if I win this match, Joe will never talk to me ever again, <laughs> probably. Um, so I, I didn't know what to do. But luckily he, he knocked in like a great red and he made 100. So I, that was, you know, I didn't have to worry about that. But... Yeah, I was just incredibly frustrated, um, you know, and uh, yeah, I don't know, it was just, I think three or four days in a row of of pretty much not saying a word to anybody other than the referee, if he could clean the white or something like that in my previous two matches, um, just really took its toll. It it was, um, was, I don't know, it's kind of like being in solitary confinement, I guess. It was, yeah, I was really regretting not bringing my, my Warhammer figurines or loading up the iPad with loads of stuff sure. because the thing is once you're out there with the iPad you think oh yeah I'll just download shows we yeah. couldn't download yeah. any shows because the internet was yeah. so bad yeah. but I think it's interesting because I think a lot of snooker fans don't realise this you know it, it's, people say it's only a game but it's not it's a, a profession it's, yeah. and it's what you'll be remembered for yeah that's right yeah. Do, in general though do, do you enjoy the life of a professional yeah I do yeah very much so I mean um, it is tough the China trips are very
very tough. Mm. They are because, especially for the guys who've got families, um, you know, Alexander, he, he cries every single time I go away now. Um, and he doesn't let go either. I, I can mm. sort of like, I give him a big hug and then I, I let go and he's mm. still clinging on, you mm. know, like, like for dear life. Yeah. Um, and it's very, very tough for him. So, um, you know, but, uh, but I think I handle it really well. I mean, I've had really good success in China. I've won three ranking events there and, and you know, I performed really well uh, at the World Open. I played fantastic. I looked <clears> like, you know, I was really confident of winning the first two ranking events of the season. And, I mean, Joe played, well, what I thought nobody will be able to play like that again throughout the rest of the season against me. And then I got to the semis of Romania and Ronnie played even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but the funny thing is that people sort of look, uh, look at my season, oh, he's not really had a great season, but, you know, seven events, two semis and a win. Mm. And I think, I think two, two players have won more matches than me in the mm. season so far. So it's mm. not been a bad season. It's just that that China trip, it obviously didn't go very well because obviously you know I lost to Michael Holt six five uh, in the last sixteen of the uh, the China Championship. Um, so unfortunately, those two events have kind of um, put a little bit of a, a dent into you know what's been a sort of like a promising start to the season. Otherwise, uh, the only regret I've had this season was entering the Shanghai Masters. Nothing to do with Shanghai or, or, or you know the Shanghai Masters, but I'd. Um, I was in Australia for three weeks in August. I didn't play in the Paul Hunter Classic, and uh, I got back and I entered the sh- I entered the Shanghai Masters, um, and I wasn't prepared for it. I-, I got back from Australia. I didn't really have the break in Australia I wanted. I was I was there, and I, I what I've done pre- in previous years when I've gone to Australia, I've not I've, I've come back to the UK. Thinking, oh, I wish I saw him a bit more, or oh, maybe I wish I saw sure. this person. Yeah. This trip, I didn't come back feeling that. I'd seen everybody. Every day I was seeing someone. I was like, you know, playing golf with mates or doing whatever. I, I saw absolutely everybody. Um, and it didn't feel like a break at all. Um, so I got back to the UK. And last thing I wanted was to practice to get ready for Shanghai. And I didn't really practice that much at all leading into that tournament. I got to Shanghai. I just didn't want to play. I wasn't, I wasn't sharp at all. Um, and it just seemed to have like even though I got to the semis of Romania it just I never uh, really got to prepare for a tournament that well even even up until now um, getting beat by Stuart there you know I, I still haven't been able to prepare so it's never good to lose but it, it's it's come at a good time to so I can prepare for the UK because I've only had obviously I, I got back from China Saturday night um, so I've only had a couple of days to uh, prepare. I thought I played really well today, actually. Like, I only made one mistake, and Stuart just played unbelievably well. Um, so the defeat against Stuart today, I've got absolutely no problems with whatsoever. I'm fully um, at ease with that. But the, the other defeats in China was, was very frustrating because when you're playing so many tournaments, if you're getting beat in the sort of like the middle rounds, the last 16s, last 32s, you're not really taking any momentum to the next tournament where you've only got a few days to get ready for that. Um, but if you're doing really well, if you're making quarters and semis, then that sort of just carries through, that flows through sure. nicely from tournament to tournament. And I've been stuck in that middle part where I haven't really been able to get anything going. Um, so now I've got a good, really good um, sort of, you know, well, good like eight, nine nine days to, to get ready for the world um, for the UK Championship so you know, I'm really looking forward to that OK and just to wrap up let's just talk about the future I mean you keep you're, you're a young man still in your, in your 30s you keep yourself fit and from what we've seen in the game players in their 40s are doing really well so there's yeah. no, no reason why you can't carry on another 15 maybe 20 years Yeah I think it's all down to um, your mindset really I, mm. I think that when you've, you know, you hear about players like um, 
like you know Willie Thorne's mentioned oh your eyes go you don't see the balls as well from distance I, I think that's a load of garbage because <laughs> that's true when you get maybe when you're, when, you, when you're 50 or you're 60 or something obviously your eyesight deteriorates but you look at the players who have really sort of lost their way they were drinkers they were smokers they were gamblers very stressful lives um, didn't look after themselves in any way whatsoever I mean you look at all the top players now you know, pretty much all the tournament winners are you know slim, you know fit looking, fit looking guys. Um, so the game has just completely changed. You, know, you look at um, you know John Higgins; he's forty one, and he, he and he's fi- he's finished off uh, the match of three centuries in a row to win the Challenge Championship. So obviously he's not as brilliantly as as good as he was in that in that regard with his consistency because he doesn't work as hard as he used to. You know, he sort of said that and. You can't criticise for somebody who, somebody who's achieved everything he's achieved in the game to still practice four, five, you know, six hours a day. It's just not going to happen. So, I feel as if you're still putting the work in, then you'll maintain a really good standard of play. Obviously, confidence comes and goes, but I think generally, when players have sort of, you know, fallen off the tour, or it's because of their um, their dedication to the game is, it was completely different to what it was maybe five or six pre- years previously. You know, all the players like. You know that that have slipped down the rankings have all just basically stopped practicing. They started doing an hour a day instead of sure. four hours a day. Okay, well, you made a good decision to walk away from that doll queue all those years ago and yeah, carry on. Cause <laughs> it's not turned out too badly. And as you say, it is difficult for the non-British players. But of all the non-British players, you've been the most successful. So that is something to be proud of, I think. Yeah, definitely. And um, you know, I think that uh, I think myself and Ding can can be really proud with what we've done in the game because we've broken that mould of the the British dominance where. You know, overseas players couldn't couldn't really be successful. We've had like you know James Watana and Tony Drago have have success, but obviously you know not on the same level that that Ding Ding and I have won. You know, I think we've won. You know, both won the Masters, and um, I'm sure one day he'll definitely win the World Championship. But you know, combined, we've probably won about sort of like um, you know 26, 27 major big sure. titles. You know, ranking titles and your know, Masters invitational events. So uh, you know, it's um, I'm very proud to sort of be in that in, in the same era with him. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat, Neil, and we look forward to much more success in the future. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Cheers, Dave. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.